We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. For over 45 years, Patagonia has committed to taking responsibility for their impact on the environment by pioneering sustainable practices and inspiring other businesses to do the same. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. Patagonia, in business to save our home planet. Join us. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Kuat Racks, Because You Love Your Bike, and Kicking Horse Coffee. Wake up and kick ass. Using adventure to raise awareness. I think it's probably a concept that you're familiar with. Someone takes a trip, they complete a climb, they ride around the world, swim across an ocean, and they attach themselves to a cause in the hopes that when and if they receive attention for whatever incredible feat they've undertaken, a little bit of that attention rubs off on the issue. It's a nice thought, but to be blunt, most of those efforts to link a random adventure act to an equally random cause issue action often seem to fall flat. And a small percentage of the time, it can even seem like it's simply spin, a move by someone who wants to add a layer of gravitas to a trip they want to take in the hopes that that trip will appear to be more important than it is. In my experience, the most effective way to serve a cause is almost always to put your outside passions on the back burner. You turn your cause into your passion. You put a butt in a chair, you turn on a computer, and you start working. That's why I tend to question the efficacy of raise awareness adventuring. What I don't question is people's desire to help. That's awesome. If it were an easy nut to crack, more people would be doing it well. I also know there is no textbook for how one might go about connecting adventure to activism in a way that truly serves a greater purpose. But I know two friends who could probably write that textbook. Dave and Amy Freeman are 21st century adventurers in the truest sense. They joke that their first real date was an 1,100-mile kayak trip around the circumference of Lake Superior. The two of them have traveled over 30,000 miles across North and South America by kayak, canoe, and dog sled, and shared those experiences with over 85,000 elementary and middle school students through the online wilderness classroom, a program they helped to create get science, adventure, and conservation into classrooms. They're kind, humble, super hardworking, and as passionate as it gets without ever feeling preachy. And when the place they loved, most in the world, came under threat, they asked what they could do to help. And it turned out a little adventure, by their standards, was required. This week, Jen and I continued our Endangered Spaces series. We're headed to Minnesota's Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness and the small town of Ely. Pack your bug spray, it's summer in the Boundary Waters. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. (laughs) 
we've been all over. We've spent more nights in a tent in the backcountry than we have in a house since we've known each other over the last decade. So we've seen a lot of places, but there's something really special about the Boundary Waters. This is Dave. I've been to a lot of special wild places and I felt like, oh yeah, this is a cool place, but here it feels like home. That's Amy. It's sort of an intimate place. When you're in the mountains, you climb up on top of a ridge and you can see for miles and miles and there's something really grand about that, but here in the Boundary Waters, it's all this maze of lakes and rivers and you see things in a little bit different way. Every time you paddle around a corner or past an island, you see something new. The Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, or BWCA, is the most visited wilderness in America. The non-motorized area stretches across 1.1 million acres of lakes carved out of glacial granite along the border between northern Minnesota and Ontario. Islands coated in thick forest shelter moose, gray wolf, Canada lynx, and the iconic loon. 1,500 miles of canoe routes, 2,200 campsites, more than 1,000 lakes. This is a place to get lost. I remember when Becca and I wanted to get Tep out on his first real wilderness. I mean, we've been backpacking before, but deep. We came here. The water is really special. I often don't even carry a water bottle. I just carry a little cup so I can just dip it over the side of the canoe and get a drink whenever I want. And I feel like there aren't very many places left in the world where you can do that. Today, it is the largest wilderness area east of the Rockies and north of the Everglades. It serves a huge part of America. This is Becky Rom, the founder of the campaign to save the Boundary Waters. Becky grew up on the edge of the wilderness where her family owned a canoe outfitting business. It's a family-friendly wilderness. I went in on my first canoe trip when I was two years old, and I've taken my sons into the woods. When they were two years old, you can plop a child in a canoe and have an amazing experience that is really unsurpassed for little ones all the way up to elderly people. You can be disabled and go into this wilderness. You just have to be able to get into a canoe or have someone get you into a canoe. At 14, Becky started guiding trips. An interesting aspect of working in the canoe outfitting business was that I met people from all over the United States who would come out of the woods so overjoyed and grateful for the experience they had in the Boundary Waters. And I could see through their eyes how important it was to the people in this country. Will you guys each introduce yourself to me and tell me how old you are? I'm Jack, the only boy. And I'm eight years old. I'm Sarah. I'm second oldest. I'm 10 years old. I'm Leah. I'm the oldest. I turned 12 two days ago. On this trip. And I'm Malia and I'm six. And I'm April. And I'm Jim. How many times have you guys been to the Boundary Waters? This is our second time. What do you think? It's amazing. What's your favorite part? Sleeping in the tents. Canoeing. Although the first night we were here, I was in the tent with this one and that one and they kept waking me up saying that they heard a bear and then they would say it's weird we don't hear it once you're awake and why was that she was snoring so they thought that my snoring was the bear <laughs> right on thanks guys thanks thank you thank you have a great rest of your trip you too
Okay, so the Boundary Waters is this giant wilderness area. That, that seems pretty well protected by all standards. So, Jen, you've been working on this. What is the threat? So, you're right. The Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness proper is really well protected under the 1964 Wilderness Act. And in 78, Congress even had the foresight to ban mining in like 220,000 acres adjacent to the Boundary Waters. The issue is that in 1966, the federal government issued these long-term mineral leases in the Boundary Waters watershed just south of Ely and upstream of the Boundary Waters. For the next 50 years, the BLM kept renewing the leases. So these mining companies had these leases for 50 years, but why, why now? Why are they, like, what's going on right now? Yeah, so for the past 50 years, there wasn't a whole lot of public outcry about these leases because no one actually announced any serious intention to establish a mine on either of the sites. In the late 70s and early 80s, the price of metal dropped quite a bit which meant that neither of the mineral deposits on either of these sites were dense enough or of high enough quality to make a mine financially viable. In 2010, that changed. The rise of both India and China drove the price of metal up, and mining technology had improved to the point where you could just move much bigger quantities of earth at once, which meant that you know, even lower density or lower quality mineral deposits could make financial sense. And so in 2010, Duluth Metals, which was the company at that point that had the lease, partnered with this really deep-pocketed Chilean mining conglomerate called Antofagasta. And uh, they established Twin Metals LLC and started looking into the possibility of a sulfide or copper nickel mine. But, you know, one thing, Minnesota's always had a lot of mining going on. It's known for its iron mining. Why is this proposal so troubling to people around there? Yeah, so Minnesota does have a really rich history of mining, but it's mining for iron ore or for taconite more specifically. A sulfide ore, copper nickel mine, hasn't ever operated in the state. And the main difference between those two types of mining is that when the waste rock or tailings from a taconite mine get exposed to the elements, uh, they produce rust. Like, that's the byproduct. Whereas when the tailings from a sulfide ore mine get exposed to water and air, they leach sulfuric acid. That's like the caustic stuff in your car battery. And so not only does the sulfuric acid get into the water system and lower the pH, which kills organisms that can't deal with a high level of acidity, but it also leaches the heavy metals out of the rocks that surround that water and into the water table. The EPA says that it's the most polluting industry in America. I remember when we, when, when I visited a couple times to Ely through the years, you literally will see one person will have a save the boundary water sign in front of their their house and the next person will be you know we support mining and it really seems like they're split why are some people for it right so if you drive through ely on a busy summer weekend it looks like it's thriving it looks like this thriving little town in a beautiful place but there's this whole portion of the population of ely that is definitely not thriving since the late 80s the population's dropped from 4800 to 3400 
So I talked for a long time with this guy named Gerald Tyler, who's the director of Up North Jobs, which is essentially the opposite of the Save the Boundary Waters campaign. He didn't want to be on tape, but he did let me take notes. Gerald listed off a dozen Ely businesses that have boarded up their storefronts over the past decade. He told me stories of people walking into his office, mistaking it, understandably, for a job placement agency, and breaking down into tears because they're working two or three jobs and still can't afford both food and their mortgage. It's easy to point to the discrepancy between the 1,950 jobs a new mine could provide and the 18,000 jobs Boundary Waters Tourism supports, jobs that could be threatened if the Boundary Waters were contaminated. It's harder to find the exact figures on the average annual income of a canoe guide versus a mine worker, though one study estimates that mine workers make more than double. And it's impossible to quantify the vast difference in temperament and skill sets that lend themselves to customer service versus resource extraction. In short, the people in favor of the mine look around and see their neighbors, friends, and family members struggling to make it in changing times. To them, the livelihood of those people is more important than potential long-term consequences to the environment. So what happened after the mine was proposed? So Becky Rom and this group of business owners and Ely residents were just horrified by this idea, right? So the leases were set to expire in 2013, like for good. And so Becky and this group of people started looking into the leases and determined that the federal government was not actually obligated to renew them. So. They went to the Obama administration and announced their findings, and Becky started the Save the Boundary Waters campaign. Ah, I'm guessing this is the part of the story where the Freemans get involved. This is the part of the story where the Freemans get involved, and everyone I talk to says that they got involved in a really unique way. Like Becky. Do you know anyone else who's going about participating in conservation in the same way that they are? No. Mark Norquist, a hunter and fisherman who works with the campaign. I think what's different is they're all in, 100% plus. And Jason Zaborski, the owner of Ely Outfitting Company. They're really being a voice for a place that can't speak on its own, but can speak through their photos and writing in a really effective way. And we're so lucky to have them out there fighting for this place. my first trip vividly (laughs) because I really did fall in love with the place at that point. Amy was 12 or 13. She went with her family. You know, it was kind of rough. We packed way too much stuff and the bugs came out at night and we were intimidated by the mosquitoes. But I just remember finding a rock and lying down on that rock. It was perfectly conformed to my back and just hearing the waves gently lapping on the rock and then a loon started calling across the way. That was the moment where I fell in love with the place. 
In college, Amy worked summers at a Boundary Waters outfitter and guided kayak trips out of Grand Marais. Dave's relationship with the Boundary Waters followed a very similar trajectory. He went to the Boundary Waters for the first time with his family when he was 13 and fell in love on that first trip. We were probably a mile from the edge of the wilderness, but I felt like I was in the middle of nowhere. When we got back to the outfitter, I looked at the map and I realized that we had just barely scratched the surface and I just kept wanting to come back. So I'd beg people to drive me up until I got my driver's license. Dave also worked for an outfitter during the summers while he was in college, then moved up full time once he finished school. The two of them met guiding kayak trips over a decade ago now. They still go back to the Boundary Waters almost every summer to guide canoe trips and nearly every winter to work as dog sled guides. In March of 2010, they held their wedding on the frozen surface of White Iron Lake as an excuse to bring their friends and family members to the place they loved most. So when they learned that their special place was threatened, they didn't know what to do, but they knew they had to do something. We didn't really know what we could do because we're not lawyers or we don't have a lot of money. We, you know, we're good at paddling and we know how to dog sled. Dave and Amy were guiding dog sled trips out of Ely when they caught wind of the news that a former state legislator and fellow dog musher named Frank Moe was planning a project called Sled Dogs to St. Paul. Frank would run his dogs about 500 miles from Grand Marais to the Capitol to deliver thousands of signed petitions against the mine and he needed someone to meet up with him along the way to deliver a sled full of petitions. And we said, well, we can do that. And so that was really the first time we delved into activism. The dog sled project made it into Minnesota's news cycles. People got behind it. It was also very Minnesotan. People got it. That first foray made the Freemans reconsider the way they could apply their skills to advocacy. The idea for their next project came about a year later when they returned to Minnesota for the summer and wandered into the brand new Save the Boundary Waters Campaign's Education Center on Ely's main drag. And they had this canoe and they were having people sign it. So we asked them, well, what are you going to do with the canoe after you cover it in signatures? And they said, well, we're going to put it on a car and we're going to drive it to Washington, D.C. They admired the canoe, but told me that they felt that a canoe should be delivered to President Obama by water, and they wanted to paddle the canoe from Ely to Washington, D.C. Now, that's a long ways. And I said, sure. Especially when we first started out, we were nervous. We don't want to rock the boat. We're quiet people. So we were really concerned that people were going to be yelling at us and we're going to be really mad. And it was hard for us to put ourselves out there. Did anyone actually yell at you? No. Well, <laughs> sometimes people yell at us in like newspaper opinion pieces and on Facebook. But no in the grocery store or walking down the street or whatever. We've had lots of people come up and thank us, but we've never had anyone come up and yell at us. On August 24th of 2014, the Freemans paddled out of Ely. And for the next 101 days, 
they paddled and portaged over 2,000 miles. Everything went smoothly until they hit the East Coast. Philadelphia, Baltimore, New Jersey, where essentially they were paddling through these concrete urban corridors. On top of that, by that time it was late November, and it had gotten really cold. I can't remember exactly where we were, but it was a point at which it had started snowing as we were paddling and we had a bit of a portage to do on the road and we were just walking and falling snow and it was one of the few times we broke down and got a hotel room because it just seemed like there was nowhere to camp. That night, maybe the lowest point on their trip, they got a phone call from a woman named Kimia. And she explained that her son, Joseph, had just been diagnosed with leukemia. During one of his first treatments, the Make-A-Wish Foundation approached Joseph and asked him if he wanted to make a wish. And he had decided that he wanted his wish to be to save the Boundary Waters. And, and we were like, oh my gosh, here's this kid that is battling cancer and he's telling us that this is his favorite place and he wants to protect it for his little brothers. And it's just like, whoa. We realized we could stop at any point, but he didn't have that option. So that really cemented it for us. We're like, there's no way we can even consider stopping. On December 2nd of 2014, Dave and Amy paddled into D.C., presented their canoe to Tom Tidwell, the former chief of the Forest Service, and within an hour were shuffled off into meetings with elected officials. The project was a huge success. By the end of their trip, the canoe had over 2,000 signatures and 20,000 people had signed the online petition. Dave and Amy give most of the credit to the other people who were working on the campaign in more traditional ways. But the two of them offered something unique with their journey. When you have an issue like this, it can be hard to look at it in a positive way. But I think what we were doing was able to be looked at by people in a way that was easy for them to talk to their friends and people in their community about because they could talk about, hey, these people, they're paddling for 100 days to Washington, D.C., and here's why. The paddle to D.C. also gave them a new, more realistic perspective on what it means to fight for a place. As much as we had hoped that we could wave a magic wand and the Boundary Waters would be saved, it became apparent that we would need to keep working on this issue. What we learned was that battles over public lands like this take a decade often or more, and Paddle to D.C. was really just helping to lay the foundation, and there was a lot more work to be done. This new perspective was reinforced in 2015, when Antofagasta purchased the entirety of Twin Metals and didn't waste any time developing a proposal for a $2.8 billion mine. Dave and Amy went back to Minnesota and started brainstorming what to do next. And what did make sense to us was being in the place that we were trying to protect bearing witness to it and sharing it with people, letting people live vicariously through us. And we realized, well, maybe we could spend a whole year out in the Boundary Waters and 
use that as a vehicle to continue to advocate for the wilderness. Dave and Amy spent the next nine months guiding canoe and dog sled trips to make money for their next project and worked closely with the campaign to plan the logistics of their adventure. As their departure date got closer, they started to worry. But not about the things that most people would probably worry about if they were about to go and spend a year in a tent in the backcountry with their significant other. What kept us up at night, (laughs) it wasn't like bugs or cold or not showering for a year. It was really that people would forget about us and that we would have this great time out there, but that we wouldn't be effective. On September 23rd, 2016, once again, Dave and Amy loaded their canoe and they paddled toward the wilderness boundary. We quickly learned that that was not something we had to be scared about because people wanted to help in any way they could. It turned out that there were more people coming than there were resupplies. Some days there would be three groups of people that would come in. Over 300 people volunteered to meet Dave and Amy for resupplies. Joseph got to take a break from high school and chemotherapy three times to come out and visit them. Like with the Paddle to D.C., the Freemans worked really closely with the campaign to make sure that their project had the biggest reach possible. And once again, the adventure gave people a comfortable way to bring up the issue, especially the people who met up with them in person. It gave them another way to share the story because we'd take pictures together and we'd share stories and then they could go back and share their experience with their communities. Over the course of their relationship to the Boundary Waters, Dave and Amy had each spent well over 365 cumulative days in the wilderness area. But when they committed to spend a full year all at once, they found that the familiar place still had surprises and lessons for them. With all of our time spent guiding canoe trips and dog sled trips, we knew the place in the summer and the winter, but we didn't really know what to expect in the shoulder seasons. The ice was forming and melting. And so that time really stands out, both because it was hard and it was really enjoyable at the same time. We were having to learn new skills, traveling over the really thin ice, hauling our canoe and figuring out how we could paddle through the open water and then ram it up onto the ice and climb out and then haul the canoe across the ice. Through some combination of luck, skill, and caution, Dave and Amy managed to travel safely as the ice froze that fall. Until one morning, camped on a half-frozen lake, waiting for a resupply, they thought they were in the clear. We were camped where there was ice, and there were big waves crashing into the ice edge. And it was cold, so the air was steamy, and there was, like, steam coming off the waves as they were rolling in. It was really cool looking. Dave wanted a picture of them with the steam and waves, so they set off toward the edge of the ice. It was a place where we had walked around 
plenty before, and so we weren't even concerned about it. We didn't wear our dry suits. So we're getting close, and I stop, and I'm setting up the tripod. And it's one of those things that, I mean, it's so fresh in my memory, and it seemed to all slow down. I just remember seeing that ice sag under him. Before I even said anything, he felt it, and he was lunging and throwing the camera. (laughs) And as he did that, the ice broke underneath him and I felt sort of a wave and I for a second wondered if I would break through too. As I fell through my upper body and my arms were all spread out and so my legs went through up to my waist but my upper body stayed on the ice so I was able to crawl on my belly out of the water without fully submerging. And I had to resist the urge to try and scramble over to him to help him because, of course, if we had our combined weight, that would cause us to break through for sure. Outside of that brief moment of panic, Dave and Amy didn't have any major scares during their time in the wilderness. Actually, the thing that scared them the most had nothing to do with broken ice or cold or bears or wolves or really the boundary waters at all. One of the things that surprised us the most was that as we started getting towards the end of the year, we were far more nervous about leaving than we were about entering it. And we easily could have stayed. If we hadn't been flying to D.C. three days after we left the wilderness, we would have been fine. Just bring us another month's worth of food. This is a beautiful time to be out here. We'll just stay longer. Okay, so Dave and Amy, they get back to civilization in September 2016. They got a lot of attention for the trip. They're on the Today Show. Um, What happened with the leases? So just a couple months after Dave and Amy got back, on December 15th of 2016, the federal government announced that they would not renew the leases and that further they were going to initiate a two-year study to figure out if mining was appropriate at all within the 234,000 acres of the Boundary Waters watershed. Great. So does that mean this fight is over, Jen? Uh, no. There's, there's a lawsuit. Ah, uh, always a lawsuit. Twin Metals sued the federal government over not renewing the leases and then expanded that lawsuit to include the environmental review. Here's the mayor of Ely, Chuck Novak. The laws that they're using are not the applicable laws. This action is unprecedented and it should be reviewed as being illegal. Like with any major public conflict, I'm sure that there are people who are for or against mining at any cost. But everyone I talked to fell into two major camps. On one side, we're not anti-mining, we're just against a mine here. And on the other side, we're not pro-mining, we're just pro-established legal process. Here's Chuck again. We are down to tourism when we used to have mining, logging, and tourism. Twin Metals has invested over $400 million in this project and get, ah, we don't care, go away, we don't like you. What does that send to investors? What kind of message is that? Who's going to come to Minnesota and invest money 
we need to look at what is established law, what is the process, and if the process proves that a twin metals mine cannot be put in safely, then nobody here wants it. This is our backyard. Yeah. You spend time in the Boundary Waters? Yeah, not anymore. You know, going camping in the Boundary Waters to me at my age is kind of like spending a whole heck of a lot of money to go live like a homeless person. Okay? I'm too old for that. But I enjoy it on the lakes, get on a pontoon boat, relax, whatever. So why doesn't the Forest Service just drop the environmental review and trust that if the mine is going to be so harmful, it won't just pass the environmental impact statement that they have to, to create? I mean, couldn't they just stick to the normal routine? The people who are for the mine definitely think that they should just stick to that normal process. The Save the Boundary Waters campaign and the people who are worried about the mine look back at the history of sulfide ore mining and they're pretty clear that every sulfide ore mine in history has had devastating environmental consequences. And all of those mines have had to go through the environmental impact statement. So it's kind of hard to trust in the standard process. The proponents of this mine name two examples of sulfide ore mines that have operated safely. But the other side of that is that they're in way less water-rich environments than the Boundary Waters, and oftentimes it takes a long time after a mine closes to know what the environmental impact was. Essentially, one side is saying that, hey, the technology is in place to do this safely, and the other side is saying, well, maybe, but we've never seen that pan out on the ground, and this place is too important to turn into an experiment. And so I guess what you're saying is that nobody really knows. Right. And it comes down to whether a person thinks it's worth the risk. Yeah, pretty much. In June, the Justice Department moved to dismiss the Twin Metals lawsuit, which seems to indicate that the Trump administration does not plan to reverse the decision about the mine. On the other hand, one of the members of the Lupsik family, part of the family of Chilean billionaires who controls Antofagasta, purchased a $5.5 million home in D.C., which he rents to Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, though some journalists say they pay market value. In August, the Forest Service finished hearing comments on how to proceed with their two-year environmental review. The Save the Boundary Waters campaign delivered over 125,000 comments. Recent polling shows that 8 in 10 Minnesotans support the review. The Forest Service has yet to announce an official decision. But the Secretary of Agriculture said they plan to continue with the study. So if there's someone out there who really cares about a place and is interested in getting more engaged in trying to save it, but they feel like they don't have the right kind of experience or maybe they don't have enough time or they don't really know where to start. What advice do you have for that person? Well, I think the important thing is just to act. 
there are people that are really good at organizing. There are people that are really good at writing or taking pictures or lawyers that can donate time. We had two singer-songwriters write a song about A Year in the Wilderness, and now all the proceeds go to the campaign to save the Boundary Waters. There's no one way to act. I think the key is to figure out what you're passionate about and what you're good at, and then leverage those skills. This whole thing for us, Paddle to D.C. and A Year in the Wilderness, it came from us trying to figure out how we could use the skills that we had to make a difference. And it seems rather obscure in a way. It's like, well, how could a couple of wilderness guides and educators do something to affect change? So I think no matter what your skills are, I'm sure you can figure out a way to apply them and protect whatever place it is that you care about. Till there's mud on my skin And I speak soft To my demons Cause sometimes at night They're the only ones listening And in 40 days I'll still be who I am the Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia. Need a good book to curl up with this fall? Check out Malama Hanua from Patagonia Books, the story of a voyage around the world in a double-hulled canoe sailed with the only ancient wayfinding techniques. You can find it at patagonia.com books. Super cool. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. It started raining in the Northwest, so um, you don't want to shove that muddy bike into the back of the car. Go to kuatracks.com and check out their lineup of awesome hitch racks and roof racks. Kuat, because you love your bike. And support for the show also comes from Vossen Brewing, who just opened their brand new, beautiful tap room in Richmond, Virginia. If you're in the area, go pay them a visit, or check them out online at vossenbrewing.com. Whether it's a donation, a t-shirt purchase, or a story submission, you are community, you keep the diaries thriving. Thank you. Um, it's time for Tales of Terror, so if you have a scary story, please let us know. Just type it up and email it to editor at ducttapethinbeer.com. A huge thank you to our friends Dave and Amy for all their work and for everything they do, for sharing their story and for taking Jen on an adventure in the Bounty Waters this past summer. Dave and Amy just published their first book, A Year in the Wilderness. You can find a link or order copy at the website, dirtbagdiaries.com. To learn more about the current threats to the Boundary Waters and sign a petition, visit savetheboundaryWaters.org. Music today from Amy Stolzenbach, Kai Engel, John Berry, Publish the Quest, Cloud9, and Denise Casey. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with permission of the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul and me, Fitzcahal. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Hopefully next time we do this, I will not be sick. Thanks My for tuning in. Cause I'd walk 40 more days All alone To see the light